0: name amen
1: oh, No, no heaven come down, heaven come down Oh, I sing a song of hope, sing along God of heaven come down.
0: It's been moving, and we've been hearing from the Lord, and God has came down and ministered to people, and we're honored this morning. Some 40 years ago, I had the privilege of preaching for uh, Greg Johnson and Robin, and I started of preach for them everywhere they've been, Australia and Gallup, New Mexico, and Prescott, Arizona, and Prescott Valley, Arizona, and uh, he's one of my favorite preachers, and I'm not just saying that. He's one of my favorite. you know why he's my favorite? Because when he preaches, he, he encourages me, and he has something to say. And he's with us today, and we're privileged to have him. God's going to speak to you today. How many believe God will speak to us? Let me, can I ask a favor? Can I ask a favor? Unless you're an emergency worker, turn your phone off. That will confuse the devil, and he won't be able to text you. Amen. And then you'll be able to hear our brother preach. Pastor Greg Johnson, let's give him hands to come. Thank you, Harry.
2: Love you, buddy. I'm on my Thanksgiving tour uh, preaching around Arizona. And so, anyhow, you guys are my last stop. It's good to be here this morning with you. I so appreciate my friendship with John and Kathy and Harry and Joni and Alex, his wife, whose name I always forget, always call his wife. I'm sure, she has a name, Cindy. I knew that. Give me a minute. <laughs> but anyhow, very good to be here this morning, and um, appreciate uh, always the invitation to come, and uh, just to be here with you this Sunday after Thanksgiving. How many are glad for the Lord's work in your life this morning? He's a great God. It's a good God. I was um, uh, counseling a couple recently in texas the church where i'm on staff and uh, before they came to my office i figured i better straighten it up so i didn't look like such a slob when they came in so i was putting books back on the shelf and uh, just kind of straightening the place up a little bit and i came across uh, uh, some old journals of mine i used to keep a journal and uh, these go you know back as far as the 80s and uh, the '90s, and 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 the new millennium. I have no journals. I I'm, I'm done, but um, I used to keep those. And so I I had a few moments, and I sat down. I began to read them, and it's so interesting to read the things you wrote at a certain season of your life. And I at times I thought. What idiot wrote that? <laughs> Who said that? And I realized that's you, Greg. But it, one of the things that dawned on me was that um, I ministered a little bit on uh, Saturday night about the fact that my greatest personal experiences with the Lord personally have not happened in church. They've happened in times of prayer and seeking Him alone. If you will, in a wilderness place, in a in a place of isolation, where you know sometimes God will isolate you so He can talk to you. Right He'll isolate you from other people's voices because there's things He wants to say to you, and you're not listening because you're too bit, you're engaged elsewhere. And so those are times of uh, great just where He really embraced me and just had these tangible visitations of His presence in my life that became. Uh, altars. Abraham built altars throughout his life, and they're altars that I would build unto the Lord because he'd visited me and renewed covenant with me, basically, renewed promise with me in those places. But my greatest growth did not happen out of those times. My greatest growth always came out of crisis in community. In other words, I look back on my life, and those things that caused me to really dig down and grow and get serious came out of my involvement in the church, my involvement in a congregation, my involvement with people. I had great experiences in great times of rejoicing alone, but my growth came when I was with other people, you know, because iron sharpens iron. Okay, people sharpen people, and if you don't have any people in your life, it's because you're dull, or you're dull because you have no people in your life, and so uh, there's something powerful about In and uh, I, I do the men's ministry in Texas at our church, and I taught the men recently that uh, you know brotherhood in the Bible is spoken of in the context of adversity. In other words, it says in Proverbs 17, a 17, brother's born for adversity. In other words, God's put others in your life for the tough times, that you need them to go through the tough times. And so a lot of times people, when they look at church and stuff, they, they think, oh, man, uh, the church has problems. Listen, this church is the problem you're looking for. Right on. On. Amen to that. So, This is the problem you need because it's those problems and the solving of those that brings amazing growth to your life. If you were sitting at home this morning with a banana and a bowl of Cheerios, you wouldn't be growing much. You'd be growing some other ways, but I want to, like, I always do this when I come to Kingman. I preach a mini revival. I preach three different sermons, and so if you want to hear the other sermons, buy a tape or a CD or an MP3 or catch the waves in the universe, wherever they are, but... I want to have you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I believe that God has a message for each of the congregations that gathers, each of the, of the services. And I, I, just, I just believe that. And so, 1 Corinthians 12, I want to talk to you about the quest for community this morning the quest for community. 1 Corinthians 12, just two verses. But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. it's talking about us as the church. There are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. One of Paul's most profound analogies of what we're doing this morning in gathering as the church, we're only the church when we gather. When we gather, we become the body of Christ. We become His hands, we become His feet, we become His eyes, His ears, we become His voice. That's what we are this morning is the church. We're not a social club. We're not a a place where you can do multi-level marketing and uh, torture your friends. It's not that. We're a place where we express the will of Christ in the earth as His church, the body. And so that concept is so powerful and so profound That it's opposed by the enemy of our souls in radical ways. And one of those is he opposes us not in things that are blatant, but in things that we would almost consider virtues. There are things that Americans consider to be virtues of being an American, which run counter to the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is not a democracy, it's a kingdom. It's where God rules and reigns, and His Word goes forth. And so one of the dangers and one of the pitfalls that the enemy has managed to bring into the American culture is the concept of the radical individual. And the idea that I can do every, everything on my own, I don't need anybody, I pull myself up by my own bootstraps, and uh, that, that's all well and good, but when you, uh, when you come into the, into, into the kingdom, into the body, you take your place in the body. It's like if we're going to be the bread of life, then every little piece of grain that comes in needs to to get on board to become the loaf that feeds the world. And so I can remember as a young convert being given a copy of the classic C.S. Lewis book, The Screwtape Letters. How many of you have ever read The Screwtape? If you haven't read those, they're absolutely, they're a hoot. But the story takes the form of a series of letters from a senior demon named Screwtape, to his nephew, Wormwood. And what he's doing, he's trying to instruct this new young demon in how to trip up believers. And the entire book revolves around the letters that Screwtape writes to Wormwood trying to to discourage a, a young Christian who's a British guy, and he's just called in the book the patient. This is what you have to do to this patient. And so this is what one of the letters says. Screwtape writes, Surely you know, That if a man can't be cured of church-going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him. Until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches, the search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy, God, wants him to be a pupil. In other words, if I can't keep you out of church, I will keep you from being committed to any one church. I will cause you to become a taster of churches. Mm, that worship this morning was a little bit of Hillsong with a slight touch of passion in it. Right? Yeah, yeah I recognize those. I recognize that style of worship. Yeah, you know, uh, jeans, but not without holes. And they, but you know, it's, and so it becomes this. We, we taste churches. We we taste sermons. We we taste pastors. That's why pastors take a licking. But the fact is, is that we sometimes, if we're not careful, we become tasters instead of learners. And we become something other than what God meant us to be. One article I read said someone recently, a pastor wrote this, I love him. Someone recently came up to me after one of our worship gatherings to give me some feedback. He said, I didn't mind the teaching, he said, but I didn't like the worship. I asked what he meant. He said, I didn't get anything out of it, was his reply. Well, I said, you must be confused. He asked me what I meant by that. I said, the worship wasn't for you. It was for God. Did you ask God what he thought about it? He thought I was kidding, but I wasn't. As far as I can tell biblically, it doesn't matter what you get out of the worship. It's not for you. It's not supposed to be something you offer. It's supposed to be something you offer, not something you receive. I lovingly suggested he spend some time in the book of Revelation, chapters four and five, to discover who was supposed to get something out of the worship. He lovingly responded by never coming back to our church. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's what happens when the rugged individual trumps, pardon the word, the committed community. That's when your needs trump the needs of the body. And your preferences and your desires. And so sometimes, how is it that we have reduced the life that God offers us to an economic exchange where autonomous individuals just gather to get their needs met? And how did the, the, the church become a place where it's, just, it's all about what you get? About what, what's for you. It's like, it's like a commodity. I'm paying my tithes to get something from God. Salvation for the radical individual can be summed up in the modern church as, you know, total autonomy, self-definition, minimal commitment, and maximum personal pleasure. And don't get me wrong, I want you to get something out of this service. But I want you to get something that comes from God. Something that's building you, edifying you into the man or the woman God is building. Not to the person you're trying to protect and bring comfort to. God's trying to do something in all of our lives this morning. You know, my life radically changed As a young convert, when I when I quit coming to church as a patient on life support to becoming a caregiver myself. I mean I used to come to church all the time. I barely made it. My God, the devil's on my tail. Please, where's the altar call? One step ahead of the devil I got here, you know. But as I began to grow, as I began to, 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 you know, to, to mature as a believer, I began to come to church not simply to have my needs met, but I wanted to see other people get their needs met. I took an interest in the fringers. I took an interest in the people that folks didn't want to talk to because they looked a little different. They looked like me. Okay? And so I can remember the radical change and the radical growth that began to happen when I no longer came to church saying, what's in this for me? But I came to church saying, what can I do for somebody else that's here this morning? What can I do to be a part of what God's doing? And so none of this is about any of us being bad, flaky people. It's about a demonic strategy to cause the church to be less than God intended it to be. We cannot afford at this time in human history to be anything less than the full-on church of Jesus Christ. We can't afford to be anything less than the salt and the light that this world so desperately needs. And so we have to make sure that as congregations we're living up to the potential and the calling and the task God's called us to. For the church to be the church. That Jesus intended when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When we build the church, the gates of hell kick our butt. When Jesus builds the church, the gates of hell don't stand a chance. And so I want to talk to you this morning about that because, you know, this aggressive individualism that's part of our American culture, it's part of who we are and there's entire studies and entire books and PhDs have been written about the chronicling the changes that took place in America after World War II that the, the America changed so drastically so quickly through those those uh, early 50s and on through the time and it talks about the technological advancements that back then brought enormous changes. We don't think about this because we have, a, you know, we have a we have a phone in our pocket that has more computing power than the ones that put the Apollo on the moon. Your, your your phone does, but back then they invented something called a refrigerator. You could actually keep food over a period of time. You know, you don't realize how new that was at, at one time. We had indoor toilets. It was like whoa. The invention of the refrigerator, people could isolate themselves for days. Whereas usually you had to go out all the time and buy fresh meat, buy fresh vegetables, buy fresh food because you couldn't store things for very long unless you had a root cellar. How many got a root cellar? This guy out there the a root cellar. So think about this. What happened was we used to be able to, to, we had to, we had to go out and we had to mingle in the community, go to the farmer's market, talk to people. But now we can hole up in our houses because we have a refrigerator, <laughs> and we have a television. We don't have to go out for entertainment, and we only have to go out every so often for food. It's the American dream. And so we're living inside of our houses now, and when you, when you, when you visit older towns, older communities, especially in the Midwest, and you drive up and, and down a street, every house had a huge porch. Because people would sit on their porches, hey, what's up? Talk to people they would interact now we have iron bars we have iron bars and a, and a sign that says "Bad dog and so isolation has become the new prosperity. The more prosperous you are, the more isolated you are. the less you have to deal with other people and so the church faces this awesome challenge of of, of overcoming the isolation individual trend of America, and uh, because now you you can be part of a church that's just me, myself, and I and my computer. And so one of the challenges we face is getting people to to, to sell you on the value of getting out of bed in the morning, getting dressed, shaving, making yourself presentable, and coming and sitting in a building with us while somebody yells at you from up front. It's a hard sell. What, What other things cause people to struggle with committing to church. Sometimes it's the wounded heart. I can tell you as a pastor of many years, I started in April of 1974. I was, tw- I was 22 years old. I didn't know anything. Fortunately, the people that I pastored were dumber than even than I was. So it was, it was a match made in heaven. But sometimes the battle we face in committing ourselves to God's community is not just the issue of individualism. But it's the issue of people who say, you know what, I tried that once, and it didn't work. It's people that have already been part of a the church. They've already bought into a vision. They've bought into something. And, and uh, uh, it doesn't matter sometimes how compelling a vision or how great a pastor is or how friendly or how kind or how many gifts you give people. The fact is there are many people that, that they've been hurt by church, and they're out. They're no longer willing to, to, to involve themselves. Or if they come, they'll come. They'll hit, hit the seat and hit the door first. Don't want to talk to anybody. Don't want to meet anybody. Want to get a sermon, pay my health insurance. I'm out. But here's the thing. That uh, just because you've been hurt by church doesn't mean you're excused. Let me tell you a little secret. I've been hurt by church. And probably at a depth that you could not even fathom. If I told you my story, I could make you bald in 2 days. You know. So don't, I don't when people tell you you've been hurt by church, really? Who hasn't? Who I've been I've been hurt at Safeway, but I still go. I've been hurt in all kinds of places. And so, for the record, If you've ever been truly part of a church and you really invest yourself in a church and you get close, if if you ever get close to people that have needs, you're going to get bit. You're going to get hurt. And so because of the breakdown of relationships and the pain that we associate with broken promises, things didn't go our way. The community can sound more like a punishment than a reward. And there are so many people that, that have been in church at one time, but they're paralyzed by the fear of getting hurt again, or exposing themselves to others, or getting involved. You're afraid of getting taken advantage of. The paradox is the very thing I need the most is the thing I don't want the most. I fear it. I well remember sharing, my my pastor sharing with me when I was a young pastor, he said, there's two places in life, Greg, where people experience the greatest wounds, and that is marriage and church. Because they enter both with the highest of expectations. I did a wedding here um, a couple weeks ago for a young couple. I did premarital counseling on them for a long time, then married them in a beautiful outdoor wedding, and they were so happy. I'm just watching them walk off, and oh, there they go. They have no idea. <laughs> and I'm not going to say a word. You need to find out on your own. But you, because you enter it with such high expectations, but you you can scarcely process the pain that comes when that person says something to you or does something to you or violates you in some way, and it's like this should not be happening in this relationship. You're not you're supposed to be my friend, not my enemy. We're not competing. That's where you get. And the same thing happens in church. And so he so said, "What's the answer? There is no answer. Relationships are risky. By nature, they're risky." When you get involved in one, you're throwing the dice to some degree. You have no idea. I have people come to me, you know, for marriage counseling, say, Pastor Johnson, I married the wrong person. I said, well, we all did. (laughs) (laughs) Who didn't? I've never met a single person marry the right person. There's going to come a day you wake up, this is the wrong person. I got married. I wonder what she's even doing here. Because you become the right person. I didn't marry the right person. And she didn't marry the right person. But over a period of time, we've both become the person that we're supposed to be. And each of us helped the other one become that person. Amen. Robin's helped me, and I may have helped her in some way. Two of the greatest challenges we face in God's community trying to build is, number one, getting over what people think about us. You Got to get over that. And number two, I have to allow God to change how I see you. I have to get over what you think about me. I can't, I, I can't let your opinion paralyze me or hurt me so deeply that I can't function. And I have to see you not not according to your history, but according to your Savior. I've got to see Jesus in you, working in you. And that's why people sometimes would like to get more involved, but they're wary of the outcome because they're thinking, I, I, I can't keep putting myself out there and risk rejection From the rest of the group. But you have to learn to not take seriously, not let it offend you. Don't take no offense. So what does that mean? It means don't take it. Somebody comes, I got an offense. You like it? Nope. Taking no offense today. Don't want any offense. You keep it. I'm taking no offense. It means that I get over what people think about me and I allow God to change how I see others. One author said these words, The attention of others matters to us because we're afflicted by a congenital uncertainty as to our own value. See, when you don't really know who you are in Christ, you're easily offended because you don't know who you are in Christ. That's why it says, you know, you you love one another as you, you love Christ as you love yourself. What's that talking about? So you have to see the value that God has in you which enables you, to, you know, to better process what other people think. The attention of others matters to us because we're afflicted by a congenital uncertainty to our own value. As a result of which affliction, we tend to allow others' appraisals to play a determining role on how we see ourselves. Our sense of identity is held captive by the judgments of those we live among. Our ego or self-conception could be pictured as a leaking balloon, forever requiring the helium of external love to remain inflated. And ever vulnerable to the smallest pinprick of neglect. There is something at once sobering and absurd in the extent to which we are lifted by the attention of others and sunk by their disregard. There's something absurd to the to heights I allow myself to be lifted to by your approval and the depths that I sink to by your disapproval. Because my value doesn't come from anybody's opinion. My value comes from the the fact that Christ died upon the cross for me. I am of incredible, inestimable, eternal value to him. He paid everything for me. And he paid everything for you. And so that's the baseline of your value. And I've heard it said we get our sense of worth from the people whose opinions we value the most. And that's true. it starts early in life. All of us can remember in school wanting to fit in with that group or obsessing over your appearance to impress or belong. And rather than diminishing in adulthood, this often increases when you become, you know, you're out of school, you're out of college, you're in the adult world now, but you've been, you're trapped by the, 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 this bondage of what others think about you, constantly trying to make yourself fit in. These are the wounds of spirit and personality that God wants to heal in us. Not to make us, well, we don't care what anybody thinks. Anytime somebody tells me really loud, I don't care what anybody thinks. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. But Jesus identified himself as the healer of the brokenhearted. Did, do you know that there's no brokenness of heart this morning that God cannot heal? There is no depth of wound that comes from people or marriage, or church, or family, or loss. There's no depth of wound that Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit cannot reach inside of you and make whole and sound and whole again. Hallelujah. That's the God we serve this morning. That's the God that you and I have to do with. It's God's will that every one of you experiences the reality of being a new creature in Christ Jesus. I'm a new creature. I'm not the old Greg. I'm the new Greg. I have, I have a whole new set of parameters about how I view myself in my life. And the Bible tells us that in Christ Jesus, all things are made new. That means not only am I made new, but in the church that God is building, I no longer see you the way I used to see you. I don't see you that any way anymore. I see you through different eyes. This means that, 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 you know, when you see people in church that you know from around town, what are they doing here? I know you, you owe me money. <laughs> we have to be careful sometimes, don't we? Especially in a smaller town. But there has to be this ability to not see each other according to my history with you, but to see you for what God has done in you and what He's doing in you right now. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Amplified Bible, verse 16, says, consequently, from now on, we estimate and regard no one from a purely human point of view, in terms of natural standards of value. No, even though we once did estimate Christ from a human viewpoint and as a man, yet now we have such knowledge of him that we know know him no longer in terms of flesh. Therefore, if any person is engrafted into Christ, the Messiah, he's a new creation, a new creature altogether. Old, previous, and moral spiritual condition has passed away. Behold, the fresh and the new has come. We no longer view each other, as the world does. When we see each other, we are brothers and we are sisters and we see each other as God sees us. That's why it says, you forgive others as I have forgiven you. Yep. So this becomes, this is what begins to build a powerful dynamic in church. My identity is not from my appearance or my accomplishments or accolades. I don't have to hand God my spiritual moral resume every Sunday because I'm fully accepted in God's sight through his son Jesus and because he has done that in me if he loves me so much how can i not extend that love to you that's what he says that his love for me enables me to love you and to accept you and to work with you and people say well i think i think i think god's disappointed in me he's not disappointed in you it's impossible to disappoint god i'm just going to let soak in love is just you can only disappoint somebody if they didn't see it coming. You get that? It's like God saying, Greg, I can't believe you did that. I'm out. You're on your own, homie. I, did, I, I never saw that coming. No, there's nothing about me that's ever surprised him. Because he lives in eternity and I live in time. He knows he's read my book. He, the days of my life are written in the book before they're ever lived david said and so the thing you understand is if that's true of god who knows all the crummy things i'm going to do and still loves me he expects the same thing from you and i that's what a biblical community starts to look like because i love what god has done for me and in me i can love you i can love others as you love yourself and let me close with this so here's two here's a couple of concepts that I think are important in building the kind of church that Jesus would attend. I was over in San Jose, California this summer, and my wife and I uh, had our 45th anniversary this year, and uh, we were over there. I, I celebrated by preaching revival, <laughs> nice church, which is kind of like a vacation put together, you know. San Jose is a nice place. I'm even to San Jose. Great city. And um, uh, that's the home. You know, That's Silicon Valley. That's the home. You know, it's funny. When I, when I was on the plane flying from, D- from Dallas to San Jose, everybody on the plane was, was either from India or Asia because that's, that's technology. That's, that, that's their world. And so it's the home of Google, Facebook. It's the home of Cisco. I mean, it, it's a massive. Everybody in that town, that whole town is built on the computer high-tech Industry And so in the newspaper, I'm reading the San Jose newspaper, and every article in it is, is about something about, about the city, the, the, the businesses. And there was a whole page they have set aside for social media, talking about social media and the impact that social media is having on modern culture. So I'm having coffee one morning. I'm reading this. And what it says, the the, the danger with with social media, not really a danger, but uh, as as much as a pitfall, is that it allows you to craft a personal image of yourself that might not be totally on. (laughs) You might craft it in such a way that you appear to be a lot cooler than you really are. Nobody, you know, sets down because I'm going to put together a loser profile and see how that. Is. And the article in the paper, I took part of the paper home. It said this: it says we carefully fill out the educational information to show that we're intelligent and qualified. We rename our job titles to spin them into high-level positions. <laughs> I'm going to resist temptation right there and just move on. We make sure to include indie music and film so that we appear to have a unique and artsy side while accepting friend requests from people we've never met in hopes of looking even more popular. By the way, friend me. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And so there's this thrust sometimes to put yourself out there in such a way that if somebody met you, they they would never link you and your profile together. You know, there's a guy with your same name. The problem we have with this kind of fantasy is it bleeds into our real lives. You know what happens with that? And I mentioned this in one of the services, that we, we become afraid to show weakness or pain or struggle because we feel that folks will reject us if we're less than we've promoted ourselves to be. But here's the thing. If you wear a mask... If you if you've projected a phony life, people are falling in love. People are liking the phony you. They've never met the real you, and so you're just setting yourself up for deeper disappointment. Unless you want to spend your entire life in fantasy land, there's something amazingly powerful about learning to be authentic, and learning to take off your mask and not hiding behind a profile that you've crafted. You fail to give others a chance to love you for who you are. I think that's a thing that my wife and I notice m- most about the depth of married love is you know everything about that person and you still like them. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. That's amazing. That's, that's what real love is. And it's not based upon performance. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not based upon anything but this choice and, and, and this, this affection that you've nurtured and grown through the years, and you know, and managing your image—it's hard. Someone said insincerity is exhausting. It takes a toll on people, and the worst thing it does—it it, 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 if I'm always presenting to you a false version of myself, I'm I'm prohibiting the Holy Spirit from being able to really work in me. Because he, he's trying to bring me into the image of Jesus. I'm trying to bring me into to my image of me. And there's not room enough for both of us. And so at some point, i got to step aside. And that's what, you, that, that's what the church is about. It's about being a place where you're known, you're fully known. In a church, I should be able to know everything about you and still love you. That nothing you would say would scare me away. I've been pastoring so long; you can never scare me away. I just laugh. <laughs> That's all you got? I call you and raise you five. You know, can't scare me. I can't believe the things I've done. Yeah, I can. So the first great mark of true Christian church is being known and accepted. That's what God wants to build, that you, each of you are fully known and fully, when you walk in the door, know Him. What a mess. I love Him. Exactly what it is. And the beauty of our faith is that God sees past our labels and appearance anyway. He sees right to my true self. He sees my hopes, my fears, my longings, my dreams. He sees my insecurities, my doubts, and he accepts me and loves me anyway. And so, biblical community is the kind of intimacy and acceptance where I can take my mask off. I don't have to impress you. I don't have to, to I, I have to just be me, and you like it because I'm doing. You're doing the same thing back to me. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of the woman at the well. I remember mean, that story of the woman at the well. And I love the story where he has this encounter with this woman. She's got a horrible history, apparently, and, and uh, she's come to the well at an odd time because that's what the, the, the scholars say, that she was there because she wasn't allowed to come when the other women of the village came. She came at a different time because she was had a tainted reputation. And we, we know that she'd had a number of marriages, and so I think of her as my mother, <laughs> who had a number of marriages as well, and I love her. But it's interesting that she goes through this amazing conversion experience. And when she, uh, after the Lord you know, speaks to her, reveals himself to her, she returns to the town, and her testimony is, is, is these words, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Come see a man who knows everything about me. I want you to come see this man, this Messiah who knows everything about me and was still kind to me. That's her testimony. And I'm thinking, that's the kind of God we all need. I want a God who knows all about me, is never disappointed in me, that always has, is always looking out for my best, and wants me to live this, have that same spirit towards other people, to love one another as I have loved you. That's what he wants. Come see a man who told me all things I ever did. That's her evangelism line. That, that's her come on. That's her hook. This is the God we all need, a God who knows everything about us and loves us anyway. I'm in with that. How many in with that? I'm in with that. I want that God. So in the church that the Lord's trying to build, I'm fully known and I'm fully accepted. And it's this grace environment that people are so hungry for today. A place where you can just be who you are. Warts and all, and it's okay. Someone wrote, in our churches, people should find rest from their battle for acceptance and release from the lie that they are nothing more than the goods they possess. When we lower our defenses, when we remove our facades and our peepholes, we begin to be truly present with one another. Then the healing power of the gospel can begin its work. So known and accepted. And I close with this. I, and when a pastor says he's closing, it's just to give you hope. <laughs> Known and accepted, accountable and challenged. Accountable and challenged. I need to be part of a church where I'm accountable. We live in a world of unprecedented independence. The opportunities people have today to give in to temptation have increased. Technology has made your ability to give in to temptation too easy. You can Push a button. And the opportunities to give in have increased while accountability has decreased. We can drift sometimes from church to church, small group to small group, without ever being held accountable to live lives worthy of who we are. That was never part of the early church. Their lives were accountable to one another in very personal ways. When you read the scriptures, like Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. What's that mean? That means in a true church, if a brother here this morning was going off the rails, we that are spiritual could go to him and say, Bro, that was a bad move. That that's unacceptable. That's that's below who God's made you in Jesus Christ. And we want to pray with you and help you get past that and get over that. That's accountability. See, in, in our culture, it would be like rude. Get out of my face. What do you, you, you have, mind your own business. You're part of my family. You are my business. You are my business. Now, he, 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 those that are spiritual, unspiritual people, stay away from me. But people that care, people that want to help, I'm all in. And so that's the accountability factor that, that people, you don't understand. You need that. I need that. I need somebody who's, who's watching out for me. Yep. Now I, can, I can deceive myself. I can come under pressure and make bad decisions. And it's a glory to have someone say, hey, listen, listen. Settle down, Greg. That was a bad move. Let's get you back on track here. We love you, bro. Amen. Amen. James 519. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. That, might, that could happen, probably not in this church, but in some other church, one of the other churches in town. If any of you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Most of us have been conditioned to believe that religion is a private thing and that my relationship with God has no real implications for those around me, but it does in a family. When you're in a family, what your brother does affects you, what your sister, what your mom, they affect you. It's no private religion. It's your family. Now, if you just want an institutional, you know, Elks Club, you can have that. But if you're going to have a, a real body, where people, the body's linked together by that, which every joint and band supplies, we all need truth spoken into our lives on a regular basis. It's hard to follow the Lord sometimes. I need words of encouragement. I need words of vision. Yep. That's why I need to be involved with other believers who will keep me in check and challenge my decisions and people who will speak love into me. Someone that knows me well enough to know if I'm in trouble. Exactly. Good word. Good word. Yeah. This ought to be a place of any place where there's no secrets. Right. That right. you don't carry secret shame because you confess to one another. Not a peer. To one another. No hypocrisy. You're fully known. You're fully accepted. And you're fully open to challenge and instruction and wisdom. The Bible, as a book, is written for one purpose. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture. Everyone say all. 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 All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof. For correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I heard a broadcast recently, a podcast, talking about the whole gamer world. How many are, no, I'm not going to ask how many are gamers because that would be, we'd be outing you right there in some horrible way. But gamers are becoming big, man. They have their own tournaments, they have their own you know, the guys are, the people are good. You can actually, you can actually now, if you want to, if you're a gamer, you can pay somebody to take you to other levels that you can't get to. So you can tell your friends, dude, killing you. They'll take your name up really high and they talk to each other and stuff. And so here's the thing that this article is saying that these people are incredibly skilled at video games and they're totally into it, have com- they have conventions, competitions around the world. What caught my attention was how important another level is. Right. They, 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 that's the whole thing in gaming is to get to the next level. And so one of the video games that was popular in recent years was called Candy Crush. Yeah, I know. I, did you feel that right there? People say, oh, I don't know what he's talking about. Candy Crush has 93 million users. There are over 2,000 levels, and as you go from level to level, it gets what? Harder. It gets harder. And that's okay because you're getting better. Catch that. Each level gets harder, but that's okay because you're getting better. You're more proficient. You're more skilled. You're not like when you first started out on your phone. You're, you're I mean, in the doctor's office, you're, you're just leaping. <laughs> You've been there for two hours. You're leaping through stuff. And what struck me is that in the Christian life, we think that as we get older and we get stronger, we think our life should get easier. No! I want to suggest that everything you've ever gone through with God has never been about making your life easier. It's about making you stronger. Amen. Amen. So that I'm going to go up levels that are harder, but I'm stronger than I was at that level. That's how I got to this level, and I'm strong enough to get to the next level and to the next level and to the next level. Yep. And so that's what growth is all about, and that only happens in the context of community. Community. You get strong in forgiveness when you have to do a lot of it. (laughs) You get strong in patience when you have to wait for the Lord on some things. You get strong in personal discipline when you have to just start up from the scratch, from five minutes a day trying to read my Bible to reading a half hour or an hour. You build up. I have folks come and say, Pastor Johnson, it's a brand new year. I'm going to read like seven chapters a day. I said, you're dead. You'll never make it. You'll you'll go good for a while, and then the next thing you know, the banana and the Cheerios comes out, you're out. You're done. You'll be eating breakfast, and you'll say, I'll come back. I'll catch up later. And what you'll do is you'll open open up version, and your favorite button is catch me up. Catch me up. up. Since you've missed 63 days, (laughs) catch me up. I'm talking to some people that are here in this building at this very moment. Catch me up. Because what God's trying to help us do this morning is step in to a higher and a deeper level than you've ever gone to as a believer. And that's going to come in the context of what happens in your relationships and your ministry and your availability for God to use you in this church you're sitting in this morning. Can you say amen to that this morning? Amen. Just bow your heads for just a moment, will you? Just today. Been a Pleasure to be with you this morning and to share a little bit from my heart the quest for community. I, have, I never preach anything that I haven't had to fight through myself. Paul told Timothy, the farmer must first be partaker of his own fruit. In other words, I can't give what I don't have. I cannot preach what I, what I haven't tried to live or I'm trying to live. I'm, and I'm trying to live But I've talked to you about this one. I've been trying to live it throughout my life. I want to be known. I don't want to be a phony. I don't want to be a fake. I don't want to be a liar. I don't want to be a cheat. I don't want to be a deceiver. I want to be known. And I want to be fully known. And I want to be accepted. And I want people to have patience with me. I want people to be kind to me. And so if I want that from you, I've got to give that to you. Because I reap what I sow. And the church is the place where that happens. Where your interaction with your brethren in and out of this building and around the city, things that happen and go on, you're growing in grace and knowledge. You're becoming something that you weren't before. And then you become accountable and you become open to being challenged. I think what happens is we have such low expectations. I read an article the other day was talking about how low our expectations are for teenagers. In the American culture. Whereas, listen, there was a time during World War II when teenagers were leading people into battle. They were leading people into combat. 19-year-old men, 20-year-old men, 18-year-old men, even 17-year-old men that lied to get in. And they they were capable of amazing heroism. And leadership. Let's don't lower the bar. Let's raise it and let them grow into it and become everything God's called them to be. And same for you. Let's don't lower the bar. Let's get stronger so we can go higher and deeper than we've ever gone before. Father, this morning I thank you for this church. I thank you for its leadership, its pastors. I thank you for what you've done in this city, this amazing congregation that's grown through the years. I thank you most of all for the future that lies ahead. I thank you for people that are sitting here this morning that even out of this morning and throughout this month, you've been speaking to them and preparing them for their place in the body, that member of the body that God sets members in the body as it pleases him. And as we assume our position from Christ in the body, we begin to grow and we cause those around us to grow. Our growth is infectious. I pray, God, that you'll release just a virus of growth here, of expansion, of depth and understanding and blessing and favor. I thank you this morning for all you're doing. Thank you for your blessing. We pray for our nation this morning. God, for the future. God, all these things are in your hand. We commit them unto you, and we give you all the praise this morning in Jesus' name. And we all said? Would you give God praise for just a moment this morning? Thank him. Such a great God. Stand to your feet. You can stand if you're able. And uh, there'll be folks up here to pray for you after the service if you have needs.